you know, when, when you're 15 minutes late to an 8.30 start time, that's actually 45 minutes late. You want to... Is that how you want to start this? Yep. Welcome to Go Additive, where your hosts combine their real-world professional 3D printing experience to deliver valuable opinions that will help you peer behind the curtain of the additive industry. And now, Go Engineer's own, Tyler Reed and Tate Brown. Man, that feels good. It does feel good. It actually Ooh. feels like we're back in the groove. I'm, we are. We're grooving. Grooving and moving. This will actually be the second episode that came out this week. Because we're kicking butt. Kicking butt and taking names. Is that how that goes? <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. It feels good. Yeah. we. And it's I, in the morning. It's actually in the morning. And it is actually at the first time we scheduled this week. Right? Yeah. Close. Yeah. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually felt it last week. When we were doing the pod, I was just saying to myself, it feels like we're on episode one right now. It did. <laughs> it was a flashback for sure because we did the whole, we whistled and hummed for the intro. Yeah. I actually was looking at the statistics on Podbean mm -hmm. and I see that everybody goes to episode one. I think a lot of new listeners listen to episode one and the title's great. What is it? To your credit. It's uh, episode one on art. Go at it. Oh, on yeah. Art, creativity and whatever. That might actually be, as far as the topic goes, probably one of my favorite episodes. We probably need to revisit it. Um, yeah. And maybe you, purge out, maybe start purging out those old, those old episodes. No, you can't do that. You can't erase history. I, well, we can't. Absolutely. And maybe we can put them somewhere else no. for the mega fans no. that don't exist. The mega but, fans. But <laughs> I, what I don't want is that to be people's first impression. Sure. Of the show. Sure. I feel like we're marginally better now. I, okay. So I suspect this is what happens. People, if people find the show organically or whatever, they will probably listen to either the latest episode or something that catches their eye within the last five episodes. And then if they enjoy it, then they might go back to the beginning hmm. and start there. I think you're wrong. This is, as a podcast connoisseur, this is my own personal behavior. Mm. And All there's right. been podcasts so where I discover them 100, 200 episodes in. And if I like the first one, I just think, oh my God, I have. I really hope you're right. I hope you're right. Eh, it doesn't matter. Of it, course it, it matters. Does it? First impression means a lot. Sure it does. Only if you care about other people's opinions about yourself. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a podcast, so we care to some extent. Like we want, we want That's good true. content for you all. That's true. I do want. I do want good content. Out Tyler doesn't there, but care about you guys. No, I'm just not going to take it personally. I do. I don't take it personally if someone I'm comes to me and says, people. "Hey, uh, your pocket, your last podcast sucked." Okay, I don't care. I would like to know why. Sure, I I would like to know why someone thought that as well, just so I can do more of it. 
<laughs> when can we talk about the news internally that we had just a few days ago? I'm um, really anxious to talk about that because I know why. I know why. You know why. I do know why. Yeah, and, and we don't want to throw false drop narrative. too many hints. It's a false narrative that you created tuned for this update. I think I you can talk about it. it. Can I? We in let's vague tread details. lightly. Don't just don't include details. But the important the the part that you want to talk about, you can talk about. Okay, Go Engineer is has made some strategic maneuvers to enter into a new. Um, territory, mm-hmm. that territory being Tyler Reed's <laughs> least favorite territory in the world, False. north of the border, False. Canada. <laughs> so uh, Go Engineer, we now, um, we do have some listeners in Canada, so mm-hmm. hip hip hooray, Go Engineer now uh, can represent Stratasys in your area. What so that's th- pretty cool. What do you think the French equivalent of hip hip hooray is? Huh. Wee wee wah wah. <laughs> Is that bad? Uh, we're gonna have to bleep that, bleep that out. Nope, I'm not. I'm keeping it. All You're right. anti uh, Canadian culture. No, I love yeah, the are. Canadians. They know that. If they've listened, they know. I they know who doesn't like them, and they know who does. That's and a it's com- very clear. That is a completely false narrative that okay. you've constructed we'll over the I last ha- twenty episodes. You did a good job of doing it yourself, there, old pal. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Today we've got a big day of news that's pretty mainstream, I would say. A lot of mainstream news that actually piqued my interest. Um, I think it was a couple weeks back on the last episode where we were talking about how I find so much of the news around 3D printing very boring and completely lackluster. But these stories are actually interesting to me. Yeah, so... Where do you want to start? I want to start with 3D printed houses. Some of you are rolling your eyes right now. I always do. When I see another article about 3D printed houses, I'm just like, all right, it's some random little round dome-shaped home in the Netherlands or some... Oh, speaking of the Netherlands, we have listeners there. Great. Uh, So... Anyway, I um, bet some people walked across the bridge and were like, I want to learn more about 3D printing. Is that where the bridge was, too? I thought that was in, like, Belgium. No. No? Well, I'm pretty sure it's in, it was in the Netherlands. I can't say. Either way. Don't fact check that. It's not close enough to home that I'm like, okay, this is really, really cool. And, you know, sorry for me being like that. But it's, like, out of sight, out of mind. And... Also, they're not like commercially available. It's kind of just like this one-off. We, we did a whole episode on this a while back. And at that point, we felt compelled to do an episode because it was starting to become a little bit more mainstream. And we were starting to see developments in Texas and Washington, right? Yes. And so these developments that you're about to talk about, I think may have been part of the discussion at that point. And for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, what what was the kind of takeaway? Um, you, you tell me because I'm sitting here, I'm kind of like, I'm looking at this website, which I'm going to tell you all about in a second. Okay. But go ahead and... My memory of the conversation is that we were fairly skeptical 
of the economics of these and you know whether or not they're they actually achieve what they claim right which is we're building faster we'll be, we're building more efficient and also that they were resulting in homes that people would actually want to live in yes um, there was also a discussion about could you even get financing for homes like these which i still suspect would be difficult it's going to be like <laughs> building a pole barn or something exactly like that. your barn dominiums you can't it's hard to get a traditional home loan on banks don't value them in the mm -hmm. same way that uh, humans do uh, rightfully so humans like me really value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wait till you live in one that's all i have to say so the discussion was and i do specifically remember saying perhaps we'll be wrong perhaps we'll be wrong yes that that's the hope i mean For i me, don't i don't care one way or the other i don't care one way or the other all right the other. so this house these homes it, okay this is the best part this is not a single house mm -hmm. it, even if you know, the U.S. is far, far away from you. Hopefully you're not like me where it's just like, okay, it's one house. Right. This is... Because why would someone want one house on their own property separate from their neighbors? Why would anybody want that? Dude, you know what? Nowadays, actually, that's becoming rarer and rarer. Because you take what you can get. Kind of. I think it's a mixture of both. But yep. uh, developers now are building houses as close as they can together. Right. But also... The newest generation of home buyers doesn't necessarily want a big yard. They don't want to take care of things. I think partially because they've been marketed into believing that's what they want. But that's a whole other I, yeah, topic. Yeah, we, let's not get too into that because I actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking right along with you. Yeah. It, it's people buy what's available. But um, so these homes are available for sale right now in the United States. Okay. I believe I'm trying. I keep trying to find where the heck this is. I think it's in Texas, um, but the company name is Icon. Yeah, this is one of the companies that we talked about. Yeah, so Icon is the company that is printing these homes. Now, the, a couple of the notes that I kind of took away were the house is built on a traditional slab of o concrete. Okay. So they're not 3D printing the slab okay. itself. Uh, the, the home is built on traditional concrete. They must have some, uh, ability to insert pauses because the window, you can imagine as it's yeah. printing the hole for the window, uh, there needs to be something supporting that concrete. So to like here in Utah, we have basements, right? Yeah. And yep. the basements you, you dig down 10 feet or so you lay a foundation, which is sort of an outline mm -hmm. of the home. And then the foundation walls are built on top of that. Yep. Up just above ground level. Up to just about above ground level. And you would frame in windows and doors and things like that if you had them. These 3D printed homes are essentially that concrete foundation, but above ground sitting on a slab. Yeah. Right? Which is traditional in a lot of places like Texas yeah. and, and that sort of thing. Right. Where they have to water their foundations they have sprinkler <laughs> systems for their foundations so they don't shift really yeah what it's a true story yeah we don't have to deal with it here thankfully and we have basements our homes are pretty well anchored yeah um but there if you if your sprinkler system breaks and you quit watering your foundation your whole home can shift what and move yeah it's wild i've never heard of this yep okay it's true we've got a few people in Texas, i believe it so let's 
we'll we'll talk. Interesting. Um, but I am grateful for having a basement, by the way. Yeah, me too. It's, it's, beautiful, it's a beautiful place to hang out in the summer and the winter. If you have heat down there. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't. Um, so that brings up the next thing that the second story on these uh, homes are traditional construction. They're wood. Are they? They're wood framed on the I, second story. I had thought that they were containers. No. They look like containers. They look like containers. They're not. That's smart because dealing with these Conix containers is a huge pain in the ass. And nobody talks. Well, I guess there's a few people now that are figuring it out that it's more expensive to build with these Conix boxes anymore than it used to be. You you used to be able to pick them up for 500 to 1200 bucks. And and then put a lot of work into actually making it livable as far as cutting doorways and bracing and any openings and then like insulating walls on the inside and still having to do traditional framing huge on the pain in the butt yeah but now because of the current state of the world these containers are more expensive right right i had read that over three hundred thousand empty containers are sitting uh, at the port of los angeles because we don't have this is how i read it we don't have enough goods to fill them and send them back overseas and so they're just we're just taking everything in and not exporting anything yeah and and it doesn't make financial sense for any one individual to send back an empty container right they've got to be it's like driving a truck your truck needs to be full both ways yeah so that's compounding the issue right now mm. of the cost of shipping these containers going up 10x. Wow. Oh, pretty man. interesting. I don't, don't want to get into that. This is depressing me. I know. Let's let's get back to the house. <laughs> okay. All right. So so they're traditionally built on the upper half. Traditionally built on the upper and the base. Level. All right. So so they're already bringing a team of carpenters in and framers in and electricians in. And they're building a traditional house on top of a 3D printed first level. Yeah. And my guess, again, I haven't done. Gimmick. Uh, it's a I gimmick. Don't know. Because modular homes, I talked about that a little while back for a moment. Modular homes are becoming more popular. And True. By, by modular, I mean built off-site homes. Yeah. Where you could, you're getting walls and stuff shipped to you. And the construction workers are just basically nailing walls together. Yeah. And... A lot of them are complete, mostly complete by the yep. time they get to the to the location, the build location. So I can imagine these 3D printed walls, essentially, first story walls being built on top of with modular systems. Yeah. And I right. don't see that as a gimmick. You're already building half the building one way. Why not just build the whole building that way? It's real hard telling. That's the thing. We need to get Icon on the phone. We wouldn't be talking about this development if they had done that. Right? I suppose. It's a totally valid way of constructing a home. Completely. They're saying it's more efficient. They're touting efficiency as one of the primary. Then why not print the whole thing? I don't have those answers. It's because you don't want to admit it. But it's a good question. No, it's a great question. Yeah. It's exactly I, what we need to be asking. I, having not spoken to anybody involved in this project, 
I am going to say, from my perspective where I sit, it's a marketing thing. They want to say this is a 3D printed home and they will actually add complexity and cost to the home so that it is a 3D printed home. It's the same thing that we see with products all around, right? We've talked about it. Don't 3D print things just to say that they're 3D printed. And this is just another case of that. It just happens to be a home. Well, but they do look good. They look very modern. Did they smooth out the walls? No. They just, they put like uh, an, elastomer, an elastomeric paint okay. over the exterior. Do they talk about the insulation? Um, oh, there is quite a bit of detail. So the, uh, where, what these are called is the East 17th street residences. Okay. And I think they're all under 2000 square feet. They're relatively small and they're very cool looking. They are, they are cool looking. They look like an Airbnb, like a purpose built Airbnb type home. If you've ever seen, uh, some of those people that put those like in the the backwoods of their house or whatever, and they rent out. Yeah. It looks kind of like something like that. Very modern, attractive. I think they're good looking. Um, Hmm. Iconbuild.com is their website, and they have a ton of information on there that I have not yet perused. Yeah. Well, we'll see where it develops. You know, this is another piece of the puzzle, and I, I don't think that... The jury's out. I mean, the jury is still out on this. Yeah, but it's nice to see that this is a multi-home development and it's stateside Mm -hmm. for -hmm. whatever that means. For me, I can't quite put my finger on why it it seems more real to me now. Maybe that's the only reason, just because it's closer to home. Yeah. It And it could become more popular. It could be. It could become more popular. Even and if it is a marketing any, gimmick, any, you may still you may sure. start seeing more around, and as there are more built processes, get better. Sure, and maybe at some point this does become the more efficient option. Well, if there is a market for them, if people want them, then other people should supply of that market. There's a market. Well, yeah, of course there is. But that that that's actually a bad way of looking at this. That's basically Why? saying you're saying because it it's a house, and there's always going to be a market for a house, mm-hmm. right? I don't really like that. Well, we talked that about means, it before. That we means just, we just said people buy what they can get. I know. If all of a sudden there's like a little development in Saratoga Springs, Utah, sure, it's 3D printed homes and they're 250 grand when the median home price is 350, yeah, or 450, you're gonna be like, this is my first time home. Sure, I want in, and it's a cool looking sure. community. This is. Uh, I fear that line of thinking though, because developers could put out really bad products knowing that someone's going to have to buy them. Look at what happened in 2008. Contractors were knowing they were going out of business, just slapping together what houses they could finish. I know. And selling them. That should be criminal. Well, it probably was for some. There should, I think that there should be some regulations around minimum. What is with you and criminalization lately? (laughs) Last night we were having a discussion and he's talking about people that were not so intellectual and he called them criminally stupid. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. I'm, I'm on a authoritarian, uh, (laughs) kick right this week. Oh my gosh. 
All right. <laughs> I have to <laughs> I have to hurry and mention this before we move on from 3D printed houses. Matt Risinger. Yeah. Or Risinger. Riz- I say Risinger, but who he knows? probably says his own name. Uh, I haven't watched enough of his videos. However, I've I've skipped through quite a few of his videos. Just yeah. I've I've ended up on his page a few times. If you want to look on YouTube, Matt Risinger, he does a walkthrough of one of these homes. So if you yeah. want to see it, that that's actually the most uh, compelling part of this story is that I saw it on his page. There's another guy on social media that goes by Zach Builds who had mentioned it. And so I was starting to see it a little bit more mainstream outside of 3D printing centric news outlets. I used to love watching Matt uh, Reisinger's page when I first uh, moved into my new home, but then I had to stop because he does a lot of high-end stuff. And (laughs) I was just thinking, man, I wish my home had this. I wish my home had this. Yeah, (laughs) they're all ultra, ultra efficient. Mm -hmm. All right. So construction technology, it's in, it's fascinating. Speaking of high end. Yeah. The PGA tour, one of the best in the world did something related to 3d printing just a few days ago, 126th in the world. It's pretty dang good. Not as good as he used to be. Not as good as he used to be. What happened to Ricky Fowler? Rest in peace. He's still very much alive yeah. and very much <laughs> competing with the world's best. Yeah, he's a... I would take by 150th all accounts, in the world, 200th in the world any day in the PGA. You're making a oh, good living. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I'm actually just... I don't know why I'm saying that. He, the, the guy kills it. Yes, he does. So, guess the company. Cobra. You, you've read the article. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so tell us a little bit about what happened. Uh, I don't know a lot. My understanding is that they're playing in the Shriners tournament was last week. The children Shriners Children's Open. Yeah. And Ricky Fowler showed up to practice rounds with three putters, one of which was a Cobra Sport 45 that was 3D printed out of 316L stainless. All right. So he had his traditional Scotty Cameron, the mm-hmm. gamer, and another Black Cobra King, uh, the vintage Sport 45. This yeah. 3D printed one, some offshoot of that. And my understanding is that it's not a commercially, I mean, the Sport 45 is a commercially available putter, but it's traditionally milled out of 304. But his version happened to be 3D printed. And I don't actually know why it was 3D printed. I'll tell you why. Why is that? So the model isn't normally um, 3D printed or milled to final spec, so it's not much different than the one they sell. That's what they're saying. Okay. So they just use a little bit of tech, quote tech, mm-hmm. to dial it in. Um, a lot of putting has to do with heel and toe weight. Okay. And there's actually, it's crazy. We actually have an AE here at Go Engineer, who's done some YouTube content on designing putters. Yeah. And there is a surprising amount of technology in a putter. Yeah, so like bef- loft. before he worked at Go, he worked at a company designing putters, right? Yeah. And so he shares some of that knowledge. It's so cool. And he can, 
I think in his webinar, I think he does like a 30, 45 minute webinar. Yeah. It is so intriguing. Even if you don't like golf, just to know like this little dinky putter that you've gone and played putt putt with, whatever, like has a significant amount of tech. Try, try to find him. And I feel bad because he sent me a, a couple of models over the years trying to get us to print them. And I'll just say it when we had the filament metal printer from an undisclosed market leading manufacturer, we couldn't do it. We couldn't, we couldn't print that geometry without it cracking and warping. Now that we have the exact metal system and, and, uh, you know, David Kersley. Yeah. Sersley. Sersley. Um, such a cool guy. Yeah. He is a good dude. All right. So check this out. If you go to goengineer.com, go to the blog and just search, uh, optimizing golf design. Optimizing golf design is the keywords there. Yep. Got it. I think he ran in the Boston Marathon this past week. No, that wasn't David. Yeah, it was. It was? Yep. It was. Anyway. It was. You're we, right. We need to get back. Sorry. Now that we have the ability to print some of these geometries on the laser laser centering system, we need to get back with him. Absolutely. So if, if you're interested in this putter, check it out. It's really cool. Um, basically they just tuned, they tuned the weighting of it. I yeah. mean, when a golfer's, obviously he knew he was struggling with his putting. If he's got three putters in the bag. Yeah. That's bad. That, that's <laughs> it's a, a bad, bad sign. sign. <laughs> it's like anything. I mean, when you're, it doesn't matter if you're fishing it, or it whatever. It shows little confidence. Yes. You don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah. So you bring options. He, well, he's spiraling out of control. So <laughs> anyway. Very, very cool. If you want to dive into this deeper, uh, go to PGAtour.com. There's an article about it. And I would say supplement that, maybe cross-reference it even, with uh, David Sersley's blog. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's a a good use case of printing. You're you're making a one-off, highly customized product for one person. Well, in his case, also, it's high value. Very high value. If that putter shaves a stroke or two off his game. Right. He's not 126 in the world anymore. He's 100th, 99th. Right. And that means a lot more money. Right. So good use case. Excellent. So the other things we want to jump to in the news, <laughs> I don't know if you all remember a little guy named Suckboy Tony. Oh, my God. That name is just so, it just sounds so vulgar. And you love it. You it's love my favorite it. to say, Suck Boy Tony. <laughs> so if you don't remember Suck Boy Tony, half, I guarantee, 90% of the people listening are like, what the heck? He's a real son of a gun <laughs> that, no pun intended, makes 3D printed guns, him and his cronies. And Tyler and I have watched his YouTube videos, and oh my gosh, it is like, it's frightening. They're shooting actual bullets out of these things that look like nerf guns yeah like they printed on hobby level printers yep legit semi-automatic rifles pistols shotguns wild stuff and it's so funny because they'll be like you could tell that they're just using the remnants of whatever uh material that they have lying around so it'll be like a harlequin colored purple red yellow pla yeah yeah wild it wasn't actually Suckboy Tony that was in the news, but someone... Suckboy Tony is a guy that we introduced on our episode 
titled something like 3D printed guns yeah. a while back. And I, so I went back and I visited the page <laughs> after you were talking about them this uh -huh. week and nothing new, nothing new. Oh, I'm sure everything's doing 10 stuff. months, a year old. Maybe he's underground. I don't know. But uh, that page, so Guns in Bitcoin. Guns in <laughs> Bitcoin. Do you remember that? I don't. That was the name of the page. So what actually happened? It wasn't Suckboy Tony, but someone. Okay, so in the news this week, uh, last week, was a teenager from Virginia accidentally uh, shot himself in the leg. He's okay. He's okay. Okay. Non-life-threatening. I was worried. He shot himself in the leg while handling his 3D printed gun. It was like 50% 3D printed. So he was he was 3D printing grips mm -hmm. and mating them up with, you know, the barrel of a standard um, handgun. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was something like a... Don't be this kid. Yeah. Don't be this guy. Yeah. I feel bad because his parents were like... Uh, we didn't know he had anything like that. Not even a gun? Not even a gun. Had he purchased it legally? I don't know. He was under... Was, he's he like was 16 years old, oh so gosh. I don't know how he got it. Hopefully, I mean, hope... Oh, boy. This is not good. So this it's is not part of the reason why 3D printing OEMs shy away from everything firearm related. Oh, it's, it's uh, very toxic. And it's difficult... I would say if one of your main goals is like a legitimate business around firearms and you want to implement 3D printing, there's actually, um, you'll you'll be told no a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of no's. As mm. soon as they find out, even if, it, like you said, it's a legitimate use case. Yeah. It's just like you see at every other company. It's sure. very, very legitimate. We can't do it. We run into situations where nobody wants to help us. Yeah. Um, everyone's afraid of one accidentally violating FFL laws. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what can we print? What can't we print, you know, without, without violating law and exposing ourselves, uh, to legal consequences. And also there is concern about liability or potential liability about any, you know, illegal activity that may be perpetrated <laughs> with those prints. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Because when you're in an environment that has so many legal uh, traps, I, trap, has a, trap, uh, yeah, like potential, potential areas where you could get yourself in trouble without even realizing it. So trap has a negative connotation, but what I'm saying is you could be breaking the law without knowing that you are because there are so many laws and they change from state to state and things like that. So, uh, OEMs just don't want any part of it. So for all the, and then you have this, and then you have stuff like this happening, which just validates their concerns. Yeah. Right. No 3d printing company wants to be the, the company that's being named in an article like this, where someone inadvertently hurts themselves and they say, okay, well it was printed on this machine. Tell me this. Yeah. When when manufacturer names start coming out or material types, yeah. that's probably a bad thing. But I just had a thought. Like, is there any positivity to an article like this? Hmm. 
what, here's what's what I'm the thinking. Po- what's the positive spin? Hear me out. Okay. Hear me out. Okay. Vi- 3D printing often, you know this, is seen as a gimmick in and of itself. We've talked about the gimmick of 3D printed houses. Yeah. All that stuff. When you get an article like this, do you think that for the casual observer, they're thinking, holy cow, you can 3D print gun parts? That's that's legit. Yeah. That's, that's, 3D printing has come that far. Do you think anyone thinks that way? So I understand the point that you're making. You know, in a way, it legitimizes 3D printing. Yeah. That's what you're saying. And, you know, I'm sure some people do think that way. For sure. Some people think, wow, a 16-year-old moron can can create things. That was probably a little Crimin- harsh. Criminally <laughs> stupid. Wow. It, in in, your in this case, it was criminal. Like he yeah. got he got busted for uh, you know unlawful discharge. So criminally uh, negligent, I guess in this case. Uh huh. But if he can do it, oh, I can do it. So yeah, yeah. I I think that's true, and I would like to see someone writing that takes that takes that stance. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, if he can do it, you can do it. It happens to me here all the time. When I see certain things happening with our materials or printers out in the wild and I see what people are doing with it, it even further legitimizes it in my mind. Yeah. And that's my job is to know applications. Sure. Uh, yeah, we do see it. We see people building successful businesses that otherwise would not have really had a path forward without printing. So they're, they're utilizing printing in a way that is like a superpower to them. All right. So now the, and again, this is polymer based printing here. Yeah. We're not talking about metal. Yeah. Now, and I should say like, just to reiterate what he was doing, there would, there would have been no way to, uh, hide this gun, right? It half the gun, the whole upper was off the shelf. So half of it was metal. Which he is was not just, the case with Suckboy Tony's guns. Most of those are fully 3D printed, but they have metal firing. They're like Schedule guns. 40 pipe, like sprinkler and That's water right. pipe. Some of, some of it was iron pipe. Yeah. Yeah. So those were... I, okay, so I want those guys as my friends, you know, when when the world collapses. But for right now, eh, I, don't, I don't want... You don't want Suckboy Tony and your name being anywhere close to each other? No. <laughs> no. All right. So when you talk polymer printing and, and firearms, what about metal printing and firearms? You feel like that adds or attracts a certain new group of people that are like, okay, if we can print in metal, we can build a gun from the ground up. Yeah, of course. And how often does that actually happen? I know for sure. I know someone that with a very recognizable name, mm-hmm. a craftsman, mm-hmm. if you will, that has been trying to get his hands on an additive metal machine for some time and has been told no really? by so many people because of what he's trying to do. Do I know this person? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah, interesting. 
So, <laughs> you know, I think that just like any other product, there are people attracted uh, to 3D printing because the perception is, oh, this is much easier. And in some ways it is much easier, but it's not cost-effective in many scenarios. So if you were, let's say you're someone like Jesse James, or not Jesse James. <laughs> say you're someone like that, but who makes firearms, right? And they're works of art. Okay. He probably has a path forward there, right? Uh, because he can sell his firearm above market value. But if you're SIG and you're trying to make a commercial product, that's going to be a little bit harder still today. Now, if you are a company that's doing something very unique, you know, we know that uh, perhaps accessories that could be used to enhance the performance in one way or another of a firearm uh, that have intricate, complex geometries, you know, that's probably a use case for printing that today could be justified. And uh, I don't think really this is answering the the question that you asked me. I'm just well, talking. No, and I think I, I just wanted to to think about metal additive in terms of firearms. It not even in terms of firearms, just yeah, the people that seem to come out of the woodworks when metal additive all of a sudden is a, a real thing. Yeah. And the misunderstanding that it's easier, that it's, you know, all these things, there there's still layers I, of complexity that yeah. are hard to it's not hard to tell people. It's just you know you're crushing their dreams. Right. I I would bet that 90% plus of conventional firearm manufacturers today are investigating additive in one way or another. They're drawn to it, just like every other company and every other industry is drawn to it. Firearms have going for it that they are like, they are high heat, they are high pressure environments, they can be corrosive environments, and so there is an impetus to use more exotic alloys, things like Inconels, and it's much easier to print those than to machine those. Some of the stainless materials um, are another big use case, but I actually think that all of these gum parts that are conventionally being machined or cast in stainless right now would become Inconel parts in the future. And I do think that, you know, it just depends on one or two good additive technologies and products utilizing those technologies that swing the economics in favor of these gun companies and then everything will become printed or half half the parts are printed. Okay, so speaking of metal, yeah, good metal solutions. Uh-huh. GE made an announcement recently. They did. Yeah, just this week, they did. And can and, you tell us about it? Uh, yeah, sure. So GE announced that they will be releasing a binder jetting product before the end Oof. of the year. Oof. They've been they've been openly talking about binder jetting technology for a couple years now. 
And them, along with HP, have touted the advantages of metal binder jetting, uh, but neither one of them has released a product yet. This isn't new to the market. Desktop Metal has a binder jetting product. X1, now a desktop metal company, has a binder jetting product. VoxelJet has a binder jetting product. Many metal binder jetting products exist, but GE is a name that people recognize. I wouldn't say GE is very well known in the additive space. You know, they made a lot of headlines a handful of years ago when they purchased Arcam and Concept Laser. And so they've had those existing products under the GE brand, and it hasn't been very successful under GE leadership. But they were kind of using them more as a print farm, right? Weren't th they manufacturing some of their own parts, and that was like the key reason behind making the purchase? I would think that it's fair to say that GE is their own number one customer. Right. But they were actively had sales teams and they were actively selling uh, those machines. Part of me thinks that it was just their focus. I, I worked for a company in the past where we were, our focus was production and then you had R&D on the side. Yeah. And production was the moneymaker. Yeah. And I, and I kind of, whenever something's the moneymaker, the focus sure. tends to go that way. It, I mean, I, it may have made sense. I have, I have no idea. I don't, I don't know the details. And so even if they did never sold a machine, maybe it made sense, but they did spin out a whole sales team and they are still actively selling those machines. They're just not very successful. What are the advantage that they're touting? The, the advantages of binder jetting, what are they? Or what at least? Yeah. First, we'll, we'll talk about what they really might be Okay. after. Yeah. But what are they saying? And we, by they, I mean everyone who offers a binder jetting metal additive solution. Sure. And they all are aligned in that it's all about throughput and cost per part. So binder jetting inherently is faster than anything that's laser centered or extruded. The process is quicker. It's um, kind of like comparing the process of polyjet to FDM, right? Like it, yeah. it prints in one swath versus yeah. having to trace the entire right. section with a small point. Right, so that's a good point. It scales well. So if you were to binder jet one part, it wouldn't be faster, but you can binder jet a whole build envelope of parts and it doesn't take any longer. Does that make sense? Yep. So it scales really well and that helps drive cost per part down and you can achieve high volumes. So you can do runs of 10,000 plus parts a year per year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It depends on the size of the part. Yeah. So that's, that's the appeal is it's a play into higher volume production of metal parts. So speed and production, that's pretty much what they say. Yes. This is why our, this is why you should buy this product. If you're looking yeah. at metal additive. Yeah, and going back to the firearm discussion, there are many firearm parts that if binder jetting produced a good part, like the economics of binder jetting could work really well for a firearm company that's producing 100,000 plus parts, guns per year. Okay. All right. And so what, what isn't good about it? Challenges. 
I'll say challenges. And what are those related to? The sintering process? Yeah, so with the binder jetting, um, every, every technology is slightly different, but they all share one common theme. You are creating a powder metal part that goes through subsequent step or steps to be solidified into a solid metal part. So let's talk about that. Okay. Okay, so you've got a, a bed of powder, right? Yeah. This machine is essentially depositing a binder. Yep. That isn't actually fusing the metal particles together, but it's just like a glue, let's say. Yeah. It's ultra simplistic. Yeah. It's holding those metal powders together in a certain shape. Yeah, so it is occupying the space between the granules of metal powder. And oftentimes, it needs to be solidified in a subsequent step. So you're depositing this ink or binder, whatever it is, it's a liquid. And you need to kind of solidify that in some way. Either you're doing it in situ, in process, or- Like a UV binder? Yeah. UV cure? Yep, yep. Or you take the whole build platform out of the machine and bake it at a low low temperature, something like 200 Celsius. And that solidifies the binder. And it so then you kind of have like a shape of your part. And that's a and green part. That's a green part, yeah. Yeah, right. All right. It's a green part, okay? And then you need to remove the binder. Typically, you would remove the binder with a thermal process. So you are going through another baking process, um, especially with metal. But sometimes it's a it's a solvent debind. So you have a thermal debind or a solvent debind, but you're trying to get the the debinder out uh, because you don't want a part that is eighty percent metal. You want a part that's a hundred percent metal. So at this point, no metal fusion has actually occurred. Yes, correct. So you, and you need to separate the, in binder jetting, you need to separate the part from the greater cake of powder. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yep. And You've so very, very similar to SAF yep. in this case. Okay, so you have to decake it. Once it's decaked and the binder's out, then it's a brown part. You know, brown part is fully metal, but it's not fully dense. So then it goes into a sintering furnace and it's ramped up to a much higher temperature. So if you're doing something like Inconel 718, which would be a, a pretty common material, you would be centering up around uh, maybe 12 to 1300 Celsius. And you're ramping up in stages. And as the heat approaches the melt temperature, then the granules of metal powder start to... Uh, fuse. Fuse. Yeah, um, just like water droplets. You, you, mm -hmm. If you were to nudge two water droplets closer and closer together, yeah. as soon as they touch the surface tension, yep. sucks them into one. And nice the part- effects. Yeah, <laughs> nice. The part is shrinking while that's happening. So it's with binder jetting, it's shrinking upwards of 20%. Significant. So, okay, I did not know that. So we're yeah. talking equal- or close to equal to the extrusion-based metal yeah. sintering process, the shrink rate's yep. around 20, 
Yep. Is it ever not thirty percent? Not thirty percent. Twenty is probably about the highest. I think twenty is the upper bound. So you're at 20 percent. And we've seen challenges, and this is where the challenges come, right? This is this is one of the areas of challenges. Yeah. How do you keep tight tolerances uh, when you're it's shrinking? Not even tolerances. It's like how do you keep the original shape? How do you keep the original shape in one piece? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. So binder jetting is. Um, it's a no-go for many geometries just right out of the gate. You can look at a part and say, nope, can't do that. And the difficulty here is, generally speaking, when, if you're a company that's investigating this technology, I don't know how often you run into a company that's going to be like, straight up, no. Like, we can't do that geometry. They're going to be like, let's give it a shot. Yeah. And they might eventually print you a good benchmark. Yeah. But how many prints did it take to get it? Right. You know, if you're in a full production environment and you know, I'm going to produce a million of these parts over the next year or two, you can invest the time and effort into making that process work, right? But if you want a system that can serve many purposes, then you'll, I think you'll have to accept that many purposes that you would like to use it for, it may not work out. Does that make sense? It's it's yeah. less of a general purpose. And to kind of hit that a little bit harder, I mean, and to simplify it again, geometries, complex geometries, you know, we're talking variations in wall thickness, mm -hmm. um, angles, corners, these type of things as they center and shrink you are introducing so many internal stresses in that part that almost yeah. always we see cracking, you know, inconsistent uh, shrinkage and expansion. So the part doesn't like to hold its green state shape. When it comes yeah. out in its green state, it looks great. You're like, oh my gosh, look at this yeah. beauty. Yeah. And then it comes out of the centering oven and you're like, oh, we got to try again or we got to mess with our parameters or we got to right. do this or that. So, you know, internal stresses because of the sintering step are a real thing. Friction during the sintering step is a real thing. Parts succumbing to gravity during sintering is a real thing. Even the binder itself can affect how a part sinters and introduce internal stresses. But really, one of the significant challenges with binder jetting is porosity we've got a caller do we yeah all right let's uh let's accept this call can you hear me yeah we can hear you i'm good hey just thinking about that issue as you guys were talking how do you come up with something that is consistent you know a consistently sized product you would have to have that for manufacturing and then you just talked about it so i just wanted to say you know that's what i was thinking as you're leading up to the conclusion of yeah, we, can't, we, can't, we don't have guaranteed consistency. What do you do, Jenny? Oh, um, gosh, I'm, I'm a podcaster here. I'm Colin. Oh, um, nice. I'm a writer. Very good. So what? I'm a mom. I'm just interested in everything. I, I just, you know, had some time to see who was live when you guys were it. So. Well, that's right. awesome. That's really cool that you, you know, it, it sounds like you're not a, uh, you're, you're, you would be a novice 3D printer, if anything, right? Oh, not, I, I know nothing. I know nothing. <laughs> As we were talking, I was like, how 
consistently the same size. That's so cool though that you picked that out because even people in 3D printing, I think we tend to get our hopes up at every new technology and we just assume when someone tells us we can print consistent parts, people believe it. My question for Tyler would be if it's between that 15 and 20%, if you come up with a prototype that is, you know, solidly 15% shrinkage, can you guarantee that everything manufactured with the same specs is also going to be that 15% or is there fluctuation, you know, up to the 20%? Yeah. So I think this is a very insightful uh, point that you're making. And I agree completely that consistency is important to the process because 3D printing is the first step of creating a metal part. Typically, they would have to go into machining and, you know, nitriding and, and other things that rely on having a consistent input for the process to work. So to the point I was making before, where if you're going to be building a million of something, you can put the time and effort into validating a process and typically but does that guarantee consistency yeah so typically with with this binder jetting technology if if it works and you can develop a process where you're orienting the part in a certain way in in the build platform and you have uh, a certain nesting density and you're debinding it and you're successfully sintering it with perhaps a different orientation so you have some ceramic furniture for it you will still have scrap but you can get that scrap rate down so you could say out of the million parts that i produced maybe 950,000 of them were good so you're going to you're still going to have a scrap rate of you know some single digit percentage that nice. i i would i would anticipate that's the best that you could do now within you know do you know what the scrap rate is in industry anyway? The, it would be similar. It would be similar. So this... I think that's exciting. Yeah, it, it is exciting uh, for sure. But you're, you're, you're up against conventional manufacturing methods that have worked consistently um, and, yeah, and more predictably. Everybody would have to retool. Yes. Yeah. 3D printing, I mean. Yeah, you're exactly right. And the allure of 3D printing is that it could open up new markets. It could encourage new types of designs and, and new products. But you hit another really poignant, uh, insightful point is that it has to offer some value beyond the conventional way of manufacturing parts. So with binder jetting, the conventional way would typically you're competing against uh, sheet metal parts cast parts or metal injection molded parts. So for example, our phones have a lot of very small metal components. Typically those are metal injection molded parts. Metal injection molding shares a lot of the same steps as metal binder jetting. The only step is diff that's different is how do you create that initial powdered metal shape? Metal injection molding has the benefit of packing that powder very tightly into a mold. And so the, there's less air and there's no real binder. You're binding by just pressure. And uh, so your, shrink, your shrinkage rate is much less, which makes it more predictable. And so your output is more consistent. And also 
the the volume of output is much faster because you can just do it one one per second, right? Yeah, and see, for me, that that is the exciting, the most exciting element around 3D is just the speed. And um, I, I think the biggest issue would be as things roll off the assembly line, so to say, as long as you had some sort of mechanism in place to make sure that the parts were sized correctly, you know, that would be the biggest issue, right? Yeah, for sure. So in the industry, we would call that inspection, uh, quality assurance. And again, this is another scenario where you're competing against the best, the best case, uh, the best use case, right? So we already do that with molded parts, but you know that with molding, I may only have to inspect one out of every 10,000 parts. Whereas with printing, depending on the application you're going into, you might be inspecting every part. You might be inspecting one out of every 10 parts. So the cost to verify the part integrity with printing currently is higher because the confidence in the parts is lower. Uh, yeah, I, get, I get that. Yep. And that's part of the whole equation of making this technology work for manufacturing is it has to offer some compelling value that is a value. It's, it's an economical value. And right. it's, there's so many steps in the process. It really has to, it has to exceed the capabilities so greatly in one category, or it has to be on par or exceed every category, which makes it difficult. And do you guys theorize about what it's going to take to do that quantum leap? It will get there. It will get there. I think that right now the space is dominated by a dozen OEMs. And that's even being generous. Generous, right? There's really half a dozen machine manufacturers. And they're proving out the market. It's it's an emerging technology. Even though it's been used for decades at this point, it's still an emerging technology. And I'm a big believer in competition. I think the influx of investment money over the past year has been beneficial and, and something we really won't see the fruits of for years to come. And the technology will mature. There, there is a lot of pressure behind it to mature and to work uh, because companies do have a need to create parts quicker or iterate faster or be less beholden to investment in tooling. That was something that we talked about after 2020 is, you know, when you, when you have supply chain disruptions or market disruptions, how quickly can you pivot and serve a different need? And that's really hard to do if you're a car manufacturer that has a warehouse specially built to construct one thing one way. And yeah, it's just so cost prohibitive. Um, it would really take some serious capital to make it happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And time. And, and time. So it it's inherently well, to listening and, and you guys just continue on. It's a great, great conversation. Thank you for joining. Thanks, oh, Jenny. My pleasure. I love this call in. Yeah, it's so, so cool. Just a reminder to everyone, we're going to try and do call in from here on out. So, yeah, if you'd like to participate like Jenny just did, 
join us on calling. Yeah, for sure. I love it. Um, that man, that was a good discussion. And mm-hmm. I, I love to get that fresh perspective that's like so excited about additive. Yeah. And how it could disrupt traditional manufacturing. I I you and I kind of get jaded. I need a little bit of that. Yeah. I do need a little bit of that on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, that was great. And so I you know, we're talking about kind of the shortcomings of binder jetting and it took a turn there with Jenny yeah. where it's like it became more optimistic. Yeah. And I, you know, there are there are areas where I'm optimistic and and on the topic of GE, you know, just this week, again, they made another announcement that that is binder jetting related. They're partnering with VoxelJet to create printed mold, sand molds for their largest turbines. So some of the turbine equipment they want to cast doesn't make sense to print them directly, mm-hmm. but they can print the sand molds. This is where I think binder jetting shines. I think it shines pretty well there. Yeah, it's I agree. Incredible. I don't think it shines with metal additive just because not yet. And and if you can get away from the shrinkage and the inconsistencies yeah. with shrinkage, the significant shrinkage. Sure. <laughs> then you've got something that's going to work. The porosity is another problem. So with our laser sintering system here in the lab, we're hitting 99% plus dense parts. So if you were to cut a part open, you visually would not see any porosity. You would have to use a microscope and you would identify, you know, about 1% of the interior might be pockets of air. Porosity is bad because that's where defects propagate from things like cracking it that you mentioned. A binder jetting, um, a binder jetted metal part is typically two to 5% porous. So you have a lot of air in those parts. Worse than casting, most likely. Mm, I, I don't know. Casting, I know, suffers some of the same shortcomings mm-hmm. in being widely accepted in industry as a, a good acceptable process mm-hmm. so one of the challenges with porosity is that it's it's less predictable and so it's one of the main causal factors of failure and it's not very predictable which makes predicting failure much more difficult now there are some subsequent steps that can help that something like hot isostatic pressing which is contributes to a more consistent part but it's very expensive. So you're not going to be doing that to a consumer product. You can do that to rocket parts and aircraft parts and turbo machinery parts, but you're not doing that to a consumer part. Here's where else binder jetting wins the supports. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, for sure. And we've been going through a learning curve on DMLS parts. Mm hmm of printing supports and making sure parts stay flat Yep. and how we print the supports. There's a learning curve there and you can mess up your part with the wrong supports. Uh, yeah, for sure. You can mess up your part. You can mess up your machine if, if your support strategy is incorrect. And then of course you have to remove your supports, which adds cost to the parts. So that's part of the, you know, holistic costing a model is, how are you removing this, the part from the build plate? How are you removing the supports? 
So that's the major trade-off between the two technologies is you are moving your failure points earlier in the process with DMLS and you end up with a better part potentially with more post-processing through DMLS. Mm -hmm. With the binder jetting procedure, you're not going to see your failures till the part's cooked. You may not see your failures until the part fails. Because are you are you going to CT scan every part? You don't know where the porosity is. Right. And the porosity can be caused by, you know, the powder distribution at the printing stage. It could be something funky happening in the sintering stage. And uh, you really can't guarantee your sintering successfully. Even if you have a perfect recipe, the way your powder is packed and and uh, how your part's coming out in the green stage impacts the recipe for sintering. So it's just, there are still a lot of challenges. There's still a lot of challenges there. I have no doubt that a company like, you know, I don't Caterpillar could figure it out. Caterpillar is pretty invested in, in 3D printing in general. And they make, you know, heavy metal parts, but also some small parts. Perhaps they can figure it out. Ford, big investor in desktop metal, they can probably figure it out for one or two parts. But it may be a minute before it's broadly adopted. Yeah. Well, and the other the other thing is speed. DMLS is slower. You forgot to mention that. <laughs> we did it mention is, that in it the is, beginning. Yeah, but as you were kind of outlining it, oh, that's sure. an important that's an important thing. DMLS is much slower. I mean, we printed a part a couple of weeks ago that took eight days to print. And it was small, fit in a five inch cube. Yep. It took eight days to print. It's much more accurate. It's much, it's much more consistent. It's a very cool part, very complex part. Couldn't manufacture it any other way, but it took eight days. So that's only economically viable in certain applications, high value parts. Sure. And it's not going to scale. It's scaling. It also becomes difficult. The machines get bigger. You start adding more lasers and it becomes a dance of light. That's very hard to choreograph. And uh, yeah, so it's very difficult to create like a very large part with just one laser. I mean, you don't. Yeah. You have at least two lasers. You can only do s such a large part. The way you get faster print times is you add more lasers, but that just becomes very difficult to, uh, to choreograph. Right. But everything's changing so fast. Next week... Someone might come out with a brand new machine. We've seen some cool things coming out of the national labs that are still experimental, haven't been productized yet, but 10 years from now, you, you neither one of us could say what this landscape's gonna look like one year from now, let alone 10 years from now. I'd be more willing to make a bet a year from now, but yeah, things change uh -huh. and things are introduced and they blow my mind. Yeah. So I wanna end uh, today I think that was a really good discussion and I want to wrap it up with, I was going to give you a YouTube of the week. I had it pulled up on my computer and it just died. Oh shoot. And you don't even remember it. I, I don't remember the name. Let me throw something in here guys. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I am listening to Hank Reardon talk about his 10 year process to come up with Reardon metal. This is exciting. Oh my, <laughs> we have an Ayn Rand reference here. Hate to be a cliche, but that's what's 
all over my mind right now. So good luck. So cool. Dude, that just gave me chills. That reminds me of my high school days reading those books. Thank you so much for chiming in, Jenny. We really appreciate it. Well, that was cool. I didn't know. uh, I didn't know she could just. Uh, once I invite you to speak on Colin, I guess yeah. the permission stays there. So, yeah. Jenny, thank you for taking advantage. Hank Reardon. All right. I like that. But uh, thank you for calling in. For those of you on Colin, thank you. If you're listening on the pod and you want to interact with us, sign up for Colin and uh, come talk to us. All right. We'll catch awesome. you next week. See you guys.